Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Inglewood Public Library's Nightmare Before Bedtime. This week, we are reading The Yew Tree by Seamus Fraser. Seamus Fraser, 1912-1966, began his career as a highly acclaimed novelist while still completing his studies at Oxford University. Frazier spent most of his later years working in Singapore, and at his death left several unpublished works, some excellent children's stories, poetry, and a collection of Tales of the Dead and the Undead, entitled Where Human Pathways End. Unfortunately, this book has never been published in its entirety, though some of the best tales, including Florinda in Chillers for Christmas, have appeared in magazines and anthologies. All right, now on with the story. When Martin was passing through Singapore last week en route to Australia, it took him to the Botanical Gardens. It is a practice of mine to show off the Botanical Gardens to visitors from England. They feel at home here. It is all cute all over again without the glass. But in Martin's case, our visit was very far from becoming a success. At first, I put his queer behavior down to fear of snakes. When we were skirting the top end of the lake, he kept to the center of the narrow path, glancing uneasily at the great tongues of foliage that fringe the borders and treading as delicately as a gag. Once he shied at a root that lay twisted like a snake across his path. I've been here a hundred times, I said, and I've never seen a snake yet. It's as safe as Ireland. He pulled himself together and stepped over the root, but I noticed his hands were shaking and his face had the look of a cheap soapstone carving, a greenish pallor on which the features seemed tenuously and grotesquely scratched. You know that great banyan tree by the wooden bridge at the farther end of the lake? A grotto of knolled roots and python-thick columns formed by the fibers coiling down from the branches like Rapunzel's hair to root in the soil? Well, nothing could induce Martin to go past that tree. He stuck on the edge of the lake, looking ghastly. We had in the end to retrace our steps. If only I'd not thought of bringing him up. By the terraced pergola. The evening might have ended less embarrassingly for us both. But at the same time, I should possibly have missed a very strange story. We were going up the steps under the arch of creepers when I heard a gasp from Martin. Good God, he cried. Don't tell me there are yew trees in Malaysia. He was looking at a tree on the terrace a few yards to our left. A tree which does, in fact, bear some resemblance to the yew. I think that's a centata, I said. There's certainly a likeness. Then I noticed Martin's expression. He was staring in horror at the centata tree, and he was positively tottering on the edge of the steps as if he were going to faint. I caught him by the arm, helped him down the last flight of steps, and steered him to the car. He was pale and dazed as a zombie and I half feared he was suffering from heat stroke. By the time we reached home, he had recovered, more or less. 
but his teeth clinked like ice against the rim of the tumbler as he drank off the double whiskey I poured for him. I'm sorry, he said at last. I'm in an awful ass of myself right now. I ought never to have gone into the beastly place. But I didn't expect... You see, though it happened a good many years ago, I suppose I've not got over it yet. I wonder if I ever shall. Don't tell me if it'll upset you again, I said with revolting hypocrisy, for I am curious by nature. And nothing is more distasteful to me than unresolved mysteries. He was silent for a while, and I thought he was going to take me at my word. I poured him a stiffer drink. They do say these things are sometimes better for a father confessor, I said. A sudden sigh of wind stirred a rustling from the trees in the garden, and Martin shivered and pulled his chair round with a creak to face the sound. You won't believe the tale, he said. Nobody does. Sometimes I try to kid myself. It was a dream. But that's no use. It wasn't, you see. He hesitated again. Then he asked, Do you know Darkshire? I stayed near Doomchester once. It's a pretty place. If you like trees, he said, without any particular expression, there's the remains of Robin's Forest and those great feudal estates, the Princedoms. All sold up now, I said. I used to spend holidays there when I was a child, said Martin. I love the place. Trees, too. But I didn't know the western side until a few years ago, when I was sent up there on a job. Do you know that side at all? Vaguely. Bleak and hilly, full of limestone caverns and lead workings and streams spilling over boulders. It's an evil place, he said, and relapsed into silence. But there are few trees, Martin, I said, keeping him to the point. Oh, the forest creeps up into those Pennine valleys. The hills are bare enough, but you get those beastly secretive valleys, like Hallowvale, for instance. Never been there. You can be thankful you won't have a chance. It lies under several million gallons of water now. I was sent up to report on the place. You know that group of great reservoirs there that feed Sheffield and several of the Yorkshire industrial towns? Well, they were planning an extension of the Tarnthorpe Reservoir, and Hollowvale seemed a likely place to meet requirements. For one thing, no one lived there. No one had lived there for well over a hundred years. So I was sent off to make a preliminary survey. I put up first at Barron's Bridge, a pleasant pub there, but it was rather far from the valley. And as the work progressed, I looked around for some place near at hand. There was a deserted farm cottage overlooking the western end of Hollowvale, and the firm had it put in order for me. My early reports had convinced them that the Hollowvale plan was feasible, and they decided I should stay and hunt around for snags, especially over the winter months. Snow and winter rains can upset the finest paper calculations as far as my survey work is concerned. Well, the cottage was snug enough, a honeymooner's dream, but lonely for a bachelor. A path led from it round the neighboring hill, and so descended abruptly into Baron's Bridge on the other side. This was the path I liked to take, especially as the evenings were drawing in. There was another path which led into Hollowvale itself, through the woods, but I didn't much care for it. It was gloomy and dark, 
and about a quarter of a mile beyond the cottage, you passed the skeletons of a church and some derelict cottages. All that was left of the old village of Hollow Vale. I'm not... I wasn't, anyway, a very imaginative sort of person, but there was a kind of desolate knowingness about the place, and I avoided this path when I could. Blasting had begun in the eastern end of the valley, and an army of woodcutters was at work cutting down the fir and sycamore plantations under the stern eye of old Wyke, who had sold us the valley, but kept a retainer of the timber. My work, now that winter was setting in, consisted of checking and revisiting my earlier calculations, and it involved a good deal of field work, wriggling down potholes, climbing underground waterways, testing the altered direction of streams, with fluorescent powder and so on. I often didn't get back till nightfall, and I found it sometimes convenient to take the path through the woods past the old village of Hollow Vale. I never enjoyed the walk, though. The plantation stopped before you got to the village, but there was a lot of undergrowth among the ruins, and... and things on the path. Brambles, I suppose, that caught the ankles and made walking difficult. That ruined church tower made made noises in the moonlight. Owls, I imagined. Then about a hundred yards on, there was a kind of open place. Beastly. A sort of crossroads with the roads vanished, if you see what I mean. And the path sloping up very steeply to my own cottage below the brow of the ridge. It was this open place I loathed in the daylight and could hardly bring myself to pass at night. You see... There was growing there a yew tree. That soapstone look again, I pushed him over another drink. A yew tree, he repeated. Largish, black as a hearse plume, and in winter dotted all over with bloody drops of berry. Perhaps it had been clipped by a topiarist a century or more ago, but whatever shape it had once was lost. It had the suggestion of some kind of bird, though, yes, an owl or a bat, some flying nocturnal thing with ragged wings and a shapeless, swollen body. I thought it might have marked the limit of an old graveyard, but it would have to have been a very spacious graveyard and would have needed to fill it more dead than even the hamlet of Hollowvale could have provided in a thousand years, I should have thought. Perhaps it may have belonged to the garden of a long-vanished house, but whoever lived in that house must have been damnedly wicked, I felt. I asked old Wyke about the place once, and he wasn't reassuring. When you wanted a cottage, I told you you'd be happier below in Baron's Bridge, he said. Don't say I didn't warn you. What you've been hearing, lad, about something that flies in the night, I know. Them's all old wives' tales. But I won't say, but it's lonesome up here. I'd heard nothing about the place, and Wyke couldn't be persuaded to say another thing. But after he'd gone, I thought over that phrase of his about something that flew in the night. During autumn gales, I had often fancied I'd heard a sound like beating wings, a flapping below in the valley as if some gigantic thing had gone to roost there. I had put it down to the wind playing tricks in the broken plantations at the foot of the valley. On one very gusty night, the flapping had seemed to sound just outside the walls of the cottage, and I was woken from my sleep by a slithering and tapping at the cottage door 
and a scratching at the shutters. One late November day, my work took me to a cavern on the northern ridge of the valley. A matter of testing how much strengthening would be needed there if the waters of the proposed reservoir reached a certain level. I had taken a haversack lunch with me, but the job took longer than I thought, and the winter sun was flattening itself like a great red leech among the peaks beyond my distant cottage when I set off on my return journey. It was quickest to return by the valley, though I could not hope to make the cottage before nightfall. At first, it was easy going. Soon I reached the bulldozer, its silhouette like an antediluvian monster's in the dusk. It marked the limit of the woodcutter's work for the day. One of the men, a little gray-haired chap called Whitaker or Sheffield, gave me good night. He'd evidently stayed behind to set rabbit snares, for wires were dangling from his pockets, and he stuffed something inside his jacket and was pretending to adjust the set of his red bandana neckerchief as I approached. I think I must have taken the wrong path in the steep plantation beyond, for by the time I reached the first of the ruined houses of Hollowvale, there was a bright, frosty moon, which made indescribably horrible the gaping window sockets and the leprous, tuft-eared church tower. The brambles were particularly obstructive after I'd passed the church, and once or twice I fell headlong in the path. When I reached that open space, the crossroads, you know, well, the yew tree wasn't there. I mean, simply that, it just wasn't there. There was a great hole, like an open grave, ragged at the edges where it had stood, but not a sign of the tree. I told myself that the woodcutters must have uprooted it with a winch, although there was no evidence of such an activity. Only that great crumbling gap in the soil. It was a horrible tree, and I should have been glad it was gone. If only the hole it had left behind were not inexpressibly worse. A horror of horrors. I thought I saw something white at the bottom of the pit, and was just stepping forward to the brink when I heard again that monstrous flapping in the valley behind me, and it seemed a thin, inhuman, far-off cry. I didn't stay to hear any more, but set off almost at a run on the last breathless climb to my cottage. I made up a roaring fire and toasted cheese at it, and after supper, read until eleven. I don't think I concentrated much on my thriller. I was straining my ears into the silence for that monstrous sound of wings. Once or twice I thought I heard it, but it might have been a falling branch. I slept that night uneasily. About two, I was woken by a rattling and shaking of the cottage door. The wind, I thought, yet when I sat up in bed, I realized it could not have been so. The night was still. There was a rustling flap, like an enormous bird settling itself on its perch, the sound you hear when you pass a fowl house at night, but grotesquely magnified. I lit the lamp by my bedside and waited. There was the familiar slithering sound, it seemed this time to come from above me, from the roof. Then I heard a sliding in the chimney, and I saw something snake-like writhing in the grate, something yellowish moving across the floor to my bed. It stopped halfway, writhing frustratedly, 
trying to flatten itself a little further, trying to gain an extra inch. The thing was a tree root, a root from the earth, still clinging to it. The whole room stank of the graveyard. For a moment, the tip of the root quivered and writhed and beckoned. Then it was slowly withdrawn, and I heard it coiling itself back up the chimney. After that, I just went out like a blown match. I'd have thought it was a dream in the morning, but the lamp had burnt itself out at my bedside, and there were bits of earth in the grate and on the hearth rug. There was a hard frost outside, and there were strange marks in the silver as though snakes had drawn themselves over the turf. On my doorstep, there was a scattering of scarlet berries and a sprig, I'd almost say a feather, of you. The sound of woodcutting came from farther down the valley. I wanted human company desperately just then, so I set off the shortest way. So I set off the shortest way, and there was no gap at the crossroad place. The yew tree stood where it had always been, black and secretive and malignant. I found Wyke with a group of men round the bulldozer. He was in a growling rage. One of the fellows has cleared off. Whitaker, the chap who's the best hand at winching. You can't rely on these Sheffield chaps. Just taken his hook and gone. But it's causing no end of trouble with the men here. They've been listening to stories too. Want to knock off at an hour early. I said I sympathized with them, and I suggested they should start the morning's work on the yew tree at the head of the valley. The men murmured among themselves, and yew tree indeed, said Wyke, pack of old wives' tales. Old wives' tales are not, Mr. Wyke, I said. I'll bet you ten guineas you wouldn't spend tonight in the cottage with me. Wyke loved guineas, but he hesitated and tried to bluff it out. It's all stuff, and I won't have you upsetting my men with your tales neither. But the men were on my side. It's a fair wager, Mr. Wyke. Ten guineas, I said. Take it or leave it. If you come, bring one of those axes with you. I'll borrow this one, if I may. We can start work on the yew tree tomorrow. When Wyke came to my cottage at about four in the afternoon, he brought the axe and a clergyman with him. Mr. Veering, the rector of Barons Bridge, was a white-haired man with a thin, intelligent face and pleasant manners. Rector's interested in these tales, so I brought him too. Hollowvale used to be a part of the parish of all souls, Barons Bridge, Mr. Keith. I have at home a journal kept by one of my predecessors, a Mr. Endor. He was rector here for forty years. He died in 1810. Hollowville was abandoned at the end of the 18th century. And Mr. Endor's account of what caused it, well, he was an old man. And it is charitable to suppose that his wits were beginning to wander. I told them what I had seen and heard during the night. Veering looked at me sharply once or twice, and Wyke muttered uneasily, He's been listening to gossip tales, Rector, that's what it is. The last rector did, I believe, rather indiscreetly speak about the matters contained in Endor's journal. The only gossip I've heard has come from Wyke, I said, about something that flies in the night. Quite, quite, well, we shall see.
We did. The thing came flapping about the cottage just after midnight. This time it tried out new tactics. It loosened a couple of tiles, and the roots came coiling down like snakes through the gap and gripped Wyke by the ankle. He yelled fearfully, while veering an eye slashed to the tentacle that held him with her axes. They were horribly tough, and when he had cut through them, the severed tendrils writhed like worms on the floor. The weight on the roof shifted, and we heard it flapping off dismally into the valley. It'll come back again, Wyke cried hoarsely. It'll come back and widen that hole. The thing keeps to the valley, said the rector. Endor said it kept to the valley. It came like this, and people disappeared from their homes. It'll come again, Wyke wailed. Once it's found a way in, it'll come again. We could get to the top of the ridge, I said, and over it to Baron's Bridge. It'll swoop on us before we can ever get to the top. We're done for. I don't relish the idea of waiting for it to come back, said Veering. Outside the valley, we are in God's hands. Here, we can pray at least. Then I'll make a dash for it, I said. The valley was quite silent. We knelt, keeping as far as possible from those still writhing root tips on the floor. While Mr. Veering prayed that we might be delivered from the powers of darkness, then we let ourselves out of the back door and scrambled up the hill. The thing scented us and came hawking after us. We heard it flapping behind us and sometimes glimpsed a shape, like a huge bird with ropes instead of talons, circling over the treetops or sprawling ungainly on the valley slope. We kept as best we could to cover, but the trees thinned out as we neared the summit of the ridge, and in our last wild scramble to the top it sighted us. I heard a whistling noise as it swooped, and a cry from Veering. He had tripped and fallen, and behind him I could make out a great dim mass, slithering and moving over the turn. At first I thought him lost. The thing had only to pounce again, and, and then I understood it could fly no higher. It was caged in its evil valley. It had come to roost below the ridge, and was sending up those long yellow tentacles of roots to take its prey. Get up, I shouted. For God's sakes, Veering, a few more steps and you're safe. Already a thin loop had coiled around one foot, and thicker coils wriggled obscenely toward him over the grass. Use your axe, Pawson, cried Wikes. Your axe! Veering heard us. There was a thud, an angry whistling, and the next moment we had pulled him to safety beside us. For a while, we lay all three exhausted on the ridge path, listening to the slithering of those roots as they sought blindly the victim that had escaped them. Then we turned our backs on Hollowvale and took the steep path down the other side of Baron's Bridge. When we reached the rectory, Mr. Veering handed me a quarto volume bound in green Morocco leather, and I sat up all night reading Old Endor's spidery script in the faded sepia ink, while Wyke huddled in a seat by the fire with a Bible on his knees. The trouble, according to Endor's account, had begun when the yew tree bore its first berries. There was a legend current in his day that in the early 17th century, a woman from Hollowvale was hanged for witchcraft and was buried at the crossroads with a stake, a yew stake, through her heart. On the scaffold, she vowed that she would come back, flying in the night, and exterminate the village. 
The last words she spoke before the hangman pulled the noose were, When the first drop of blood shall be sprinkled on his feathers, the owl will go a-mousing. In the morning, we brought several cans of petrol and a stick or two of galenite to that yew tree above the ruined village of Hollowdale, and we blew the accursed thing up. It screamed as it fell. There were things tangled among its roots, skulls and bones, a rusted sword, an old flintlock pistol, and a gold chain, some rabbit snares too, and a red bandana handkerchief, quite unrotted. But the most awful thing was a great pink slug, cocooned in gray hair, a palpitating, bloated thing that suggested a woman hideously swollen with a dropsy. We poured petrol among the roots and into that vile pit and set fire to it. The fire burnt all day, and not much remained of the tree or the thing in its roots. When I last looked down into Hollowvale, it was a great, tarnished-looking glass of water. All the same, when the firm offered me a job boring for water in the Great Dust Bowl of Australia, I jumped at it. You can travel for miles, they tell me, without seeing a single tree. The end. Thank you for listening to another episode of Nightmare Before Bedtime. Please visit library.cityofinglewood.org for more information on our library and our programming. Have a good night.